Jesus may possess the answers that we seek, but he also asks the questions we need to hear. Let's get close enough to listen to his wisdom and also be ready with our answer when the Jesus question comes our way. You know, every so often you hear someone say something like, um, hey, you know, there is no such thing as a dumb question. You ever heard someone say that? When I hear that, I always want to say, oh, yeah, there is. Because <laughs> there totally is, right? I mean, there really are dumb questions out there. Like, so Carl and I were in, were in Greece a little bit ago. Um, and first night out, we go out to eat. And uh, they come, this lady comes by, takes my order. I'm in Greece, okay? And I say... Uh, do you have Greek salad? <laughs> that right there is a dumb question. I'm pretty, pretty sure they just call it salad there. So, yeah. So, um, uh, so, so on Yahoo, you can write in and, and get any question you want answered, right? You know this, right? If you have any question in the world, it's kind of safe because you can answer. You can ask whatever questions. Well, you, see, you tell me if you don't think some of these are a little bit dumb. Take a look at this one. Here's one. Are there birds in Canada? Uh, I'm thinking of taking my camera, and they wanted to know. It's like, okay, that's a dumb question. Okay, I'm telling you. Uh, is an egg a fruit or a vegetable? <laughs> okay? Just no. That's a dumb question. All right, here we go. Um, if I eat myself, would I become twice as big or disappear completely? <laughs> that's either a really good question or a really ridiculous one. All right, how about this one? I want a new letter in the alphabet. Can I make a new letter and put it in the alphabet? Note, alphabet spelled incorrectly. Dude, why don't you learn the one we have, and then we'll worry about adding new things. Okay, how about this one? How do I turn off caps lock? <laughs> That's hilarious to me. I turned it on. I don't know how to turn it on. There, there are such a thing. There is such a thing as a dumb question, right? There really is. Uh, so, so here we go with this series. We're, we're calling The Jesus Question. And Jesus is so good at asking questions, isn't he? And... I've learned, and maybe you're learning with me, that Jesus doesn't ask questions just to learn something. He, he asks questions to teach something. And he uses questions like a fisherman uses a hook to set it in us and then just to use that question to reel you in ever closer, closer until you're standing right face to face with him. Because the question hooks you if you let it. And I really hope that happens for you today. I hope it happens for every single one of us today, that you'll find yourself hooked by a very important question Jesus has, and that it will draw you right up into his face, where we can just deal super honestly with the living God today. And I'll, and I'll, I'll shoot straight with you. When you hear the question Jesus is going to ask, your reaction might be, well, that's a dumb question. That's a really stupid question. It's ridiculous. It's an unnecessary question. Or is it? So let's jump in. John chapter 5 is where we're starting today. John chapter 5. Jesus is motoring around with his friends and disciples. He has already been very popular. And now it seems like the tide is starting to turn against him a little bit. He's healing on the Sabbath over and over again. And the religious officials don't much like that. Take a look at John chapter 5 verse 1. Here we go. We'll put it on the screen. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem... 
for one of the Jewish holy days. Jesus was a good practicing Jew. And uh, he and his disciples go, as everyone did, to Jerusalem for these major festivals. We don't know if it was Pentecost or Passover. We're not exactly sure, but there he goes. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. You can actually go see this for yourself today. Um, it's still there. We've unearthed it in our archaeological coverings. Um, so uh, Jerusalem then and now is surrounded by a city gate, a city wall, and there were different gates. This is in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. It's called the Sheep Gate. Jesus enters there, and there's this huge pool. If you go there today, you can see it underneath St. Anne's Church is where they found it. It's all there in the colonnades and the whole deal. It's a pool about 130 feet wide by 300-some feet long. And it was there as a place to wash and bathe and gather uh, outside the temple, about 100 yards from the temple. And so... uh, you might think that it's a, a kind of interesting and beautiful place. The name itself is Bethesda, which means house of mercy, which is kind of ironic because it really seems more like a cruel pool. You'll see why as we go to the next verse. Who is at the pool? Well, crowds, lots and lots of people around the pool. But who? Sick people. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches all around the pool. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him, he knew Jesus knows so much about us that we don't tell him. He already knows. He knew he'd been ill for a long time. So in your mind, if you can kind of imagine this rather sobering scene, something sort of like a terribly overpopulated, understaffed hospital or nursing home, in an underdeveloped country, in open air, with all of these thin, frail, leathered, ailing bodies strewn row after row on their mats, one after the other, around the pool. It's the kind of place that a lot of people would probably stay away from. Because, you know, the smells and the sounds and the people who are there, right? Um, There's a blind man who kind of just waits and listens for someone to come by so he can shake his cup and get a donation. There's There's a little child with stubs for arms who can't even swat his own flies off his face. A woman with those grotesque images on her face or growths on the side of her head. Nobody wants to be around her. And there's this man, no wheelchair or crutches, just sitting there rotting away on his mat by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And they all come here because, well, where else are you going to go? But also because of what appears to me to be a kind of pathetic superstition. The pools are fed by an underwater spring. And occasionally they bubbled up and caused the water on the surface to ripple and move And legend had come, and what I would consider a kind of cruel myth had grown, that said, oh, when those subterranean waters bubbled up, really, that was an angel's wings that had come down to dip in the water and move, and the first person who could get into the water after the angel touched the surface of the water would be healed from whatever you wanted to be healed from. The Bible explains that tradition in a footnote in your Bible, probably where verse 4 should be. So here's this band of needy, broken humanity jockeying for position at the edge of the pool in a kind of pathetic waiting game. And of course, 
the people who need it the most are the ones who are least likely to get it because how are they going to get in the pool, especially this guy with no legs to run and jump in, right? It's like an example of religion at its worst. And Jesus chooses here to head to the temple for worship by the pool where others are zooming by on the Sabbath to head up there. Jesus stops and looks down at this man, this anonymous lump of humanity amidst lots of other anonymous lumps. And right away we begin to get the feeling that this man's biggest problem might not be his legs. So take a look at what happens at the pool. First, let's notice what Jesus sees. What does Jesus see? Well, Jesus sees people in pain. Jesus notices those that others pass by or might find invisible. People are coming from miles around to meet God up in the temple. Little do they know God is out back by the pool. Here is Jesus stepping among the blind, the lame, the hurting, the beggars. Jesus sees our pain. It's good to know, isn't it? And it's easy to forget how much pain there is and how many of us are in pain all the time, especially when we come to the temple all dressed up and cleaned up and looking so good all the time. But the truth is, as we look around even today, the truth is we're all like those people. We're not up at the temple. We're down by the pool, aren't we? We're those people. And this place, at our Avenue campus and Bel Air campus, and our Edgewood campus and Mountain Road campus, I, got, I looked at the dimensions. You know what? We're, we're just about the, the worship areas are just about the size of the Pool of Bethesda. How fitting. Because here we are with all of our problems and our pain. We're spiritually lame. We're emotionally crippled. We're blind to so many things about ourselves and the truth and our own lives. We, we come hurting from a fight, from a divorce, from a struggle. We straggle in here from sickness and stress, exhausted, and climb up to the edge of the pool, don't we, wondering if God's going to show up and do something to fix it all. Here we are. Every person bears a burden, and Jesus sees that pain. He knows you're hurt. He does. And he's moving through these very seats Stepping over each of us, looking down upon us. He's the God, as Psalm 147 says, who heals the brokenhearted, who binds up wounds. And we're here today because we want a touch from Jesus for our own broken heart. For this one who says in Matthew 11 about himself, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened by the pool, and I will give you rest. That we can only find in him, this one, in his wounds we are somehow healed. The Bible says, cast your cares on him, and he cares for you. It's good to know. That's what Jesus sees by the pool. He sees pain. He sees your pain and mine. But now to the question, what Jesus asks. What he asks is interesting. Here's the question. He hovers over this man who's been sitting by the pool every day for 38 years. Are you ready for the question? Do you know the question already? Here's what he asks. Look at verse 6. Here it is. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Seriously? Do you want to get well? Would you like to be cured? Here's this guy trying to get into the pool every day for 38 years. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? No 
chat the guy up a little bit. No bending down, stroking him on the head and asking, tell me your story. None of that. Do you want to get well? I told you you'd think it was a dumb question, an unnecessary question, almost a cruel question. Like, like somebody who's drowning, like, hey, you need a hand? What a ridiculous question. Or is it? Or is it? When you start learning that Jesus asks really good questions, you start wondering, I wonder why he asked that question. And here's what we can count on, the fact that when we ask questions, we ask questions to get information. When Jesus asks a question, he does it to cause self-examination. When we ask a question, we want information. He asks it to cause self-examination. He wants you to think about what's going on inside. He wants you to look at yourself. He wants you to see what he already knows. There's a word in the book of Acts to describe God. It's, it's, in Greek, it looks like this. Cardiognostis. Recognize cardio, heart. And gnosis, knowledge. He's the heart-knowing God. He knows everything about you. He knows what's going on at the deepest level. And so he asks a question. So you'll pry it open and look inside of there. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Do you? Do you think it's possible that Jesus, knowing the heart of this man, realized this guy had found some advantage, maybe even, in his condition? Oh, Ben, that's an awful thing to say. Do you think maybe he'd gotten used to it and was finding some kind of strange comfort even in it, in his familiarity, in his routine, in his problem, so much so it had become even his identity? Sometimes we just wouldn't know what to do or who we'd be without our problems, would we? We develop a codependency sometimes with our problems and our pain. We make this agreement with our bad habits and our immature behavior. We, we make, make an agreement in a codependent relationship with our addictive activities and our, and our repetitive cycles of relating in ways that destroy other people or ourselves or, or are not helpful or hurtful. And, 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 I, and I, I just know so many people that love to complain all about their problems, but it sure looks to everyone else around them like they are pretty comfortable with them and have made a lot of peace with it. Now, listen, I know we have to be really, really careful here. I, I get that. I know we have to be careful because there is such a thing as legitimate pain and the kind of sorrow and crushing stuff in life that we would give anything to be free from. I get that. So we can't take this to mean that Jesus is saying here that all people who aren't healed are that way because, well, they don't want it bad enough. They don't want to be healed. That's just wrong, mean-spirited, ignorant of who Jesus is and how he operates. But listen, the other truth is that Jesus isn't going to let you off the hook. Do you want to be healed? Because this guy's problem, see, had become a way of life for him. In fact, Jesus is saying, you know, if I heal you, you've got all these friends here. Are you ready to change your friend group? You have a thing that you do here every day. You hang out. You have a routine. You, you, if you get better, you have to leave all that familiarity behind. Is that really what you're ready to do? You have to get a job, you know. You have to relate to people. Do you want to get well? What Jesus wants to know from that guy and what he wants to know from you and from me is, are you ready for the change that comes when Jesus really heals you? 
Are you ready for that? Do you really want Jesus in your life? If it means you'll have to change something, or do you want to just continue what you are and gripe about your problems and say, I don't understand why Jesus and everybody else doesn't do a little more for me? Because there's a difference. Jesus puts it like that. It's a whole different kind of question. So we see what Jesus sees, that our pain, and he sees what he asks, do you want to get well? But this is very often what Jesus hears. Let's look for a moment at what Jesus hears. And this guy's answer to the question, do you want to be healed, is in verse 7. And here it is. I can't. You want to be healed? Oh, I can't, sir. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always comes and gets ahead of me. Nobody will do it for me. I can't. You don't know what you're asking. It's not possible. You don't understand. I'm stuck here. It's not my fault. Jesus asked a yes or no question. And this guy doesn't say, oh my goodness, yes, I would give anything. What do I do? No, he fumbles it completely, complains about everybody else, makes a bunch of excuses. And the solution is standing right before him, but he can't see it because he's pretty focused on reality the way he is determined it is. Our universe can sometimes get so tiny you've got no room for God in it because, after all, the problems are the real, the real situation, the real issue here. People say to me as a pastor all the time, I don't like how angry I am. I don't like it. I've got to do something about that. I don't like my marriage and the way it's going on. My family is getting out of control. I've got to do something with my kids. I've got to... Do something about my health. I gotta. I don't like the way my mind goes down this rut. I don't. I want to be better. I want to do better. I want to live better. But I can't. I'm stuck, and it's not my fault. And there's all these reasons. And Jesus just wants to know. So, do you want to get well? He's before us right now with the power to heal more than our physical infirmities. And he wants to know how serious we are. How serious are you about wanting a life with him? I wonder sometimes if Jesus just wants to say to me, Ben, come on. You want to change? Really? You don't want to change. You don't want to get better. You want your pain to stop. You want the discomfort and the frustration and the emptiness and some of the inconvenience of your sin to go away. Sure, yeah. But your desire to be well, to be whole, to be really new, to be completely free, to be changed in how I want to change you, that is not as great as your desire to hold on to whatever you're getting out of your problem. There's always pain involved in change, isn't there? There's no change without pain. Change hurts. That's... That's why we don't do very much of it sometimes. We talk about it. We like to complain about it. We like to act like we're trying. But change brings pain. And I'm pretty convinced that we don't change until the pain of staying the way we are is greater than the pain of change. We don't change until the pain of staying the way you are is greater than the pain of what it's going to cost you to change. And that's why many of us live a lot of our lives sitting on a straw mat by the side of the pool, 
of Bethesda with all the others, some of whom have real burdens and some of whom just play the victim really well. You want to get well? The heart-knowing God reveals to us and invites you to see the truth about yourself because that's the key to moving forward. The truth about how much you really do want to change or grow or find healing. I mean, this man, you have to change your circle of friends. What if you had to to do that to follow Jesus? What What if you had to change your daily routine or let go of some habits like this guy did? Are you really ready for that? You want to be made well? In their book on sexual purity called Every Man's Battle, which is uh, a good title since I, I, I know not just men, but so many, and dare I say just all of us, live in the struggle with this issue. Stephen Arterburn and Fred Stoker, the authors say, if you truly want to win the battle with lustful eyes and an impure mind that leads you places you don't want to go, it comes down to deciding, are you willing to have that part of your mind and thoughts completely destroyed? I think, I think the truth is most of us would say we want... Some of our sexual sins snuffed out when we become Christ followers. We do want to get rid of the guilt and the feeling dirty and all of that. But do we really want to wipe away all the feelings we get out of it? There is a payoff. We're getting something out of it. That's why we sometimes struggle and keep doing it. So yeah, there's a downside. The shame and the impurity and the guilt and all kinds of things. And that's all painful. But only when we decide that that pain is greater than the pain we fear it will cost us to stop, will we ever make any headway? Here's what they say. If you want to win the battle for sexual purity, you've got to make the gutsy decision that you hate your sin enough to go to war against it and let it die and be replaced by new life in Christ. So what do you want more? So as you think about your problem and your pain and your area of life, that needs Jesus, are you really ready for walking into a new life that he has for you? Are you really ready? In C.S. Lewis's incredible story, The Great Divorce, an amazing little book, I invite you to read it. He tells about a bunch of people from hell who kind of take a day trip, like a bus tour, if you will, to heaven. They go up there to visit heaven, and they find out when they're up there that they don't actually have to get on the bus and go back to hell if they don't want to. They can stay in heaven with God on God's terms, but they can if they want to. And there's this man among them from hell who has this little red lizard affixed to his shoulder, this ugly thing twitching its tail and whispering little things in his ear the whole time. It seems to represent his secret sin his darker side, his embarrassing involvement in the things that aren't really of God. And so here he is in heaven, and he's apologizing for the lizard. He's kind of embarrassed, but not enough to get rid of him. I just can't seem to control him today, (laughs) he says. And one of the powerful, angelic, flaming figures that represents Christ says, would you like me to make him quiet and get rid of him? And the man says, oh, of course I would. Yes. And the flaming spirit says, well, then I'll kill him. And he reaches out his fiery hand toward the lizard. And the man pulls back, ow, oh, you're hurting me. Wow, you're burning me. 
don't you want him killed? The angel says, well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. (laughs) I don't want to bother you with all that. And the angel says, it's the only way. And he reaches his burning hand very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, now that's another whole question. We didn't start talking about that. I'm open to considering it. I was thinking maybe we'd just quiet him down and silence him. I think I need a little more time to think about this. Shall I kill it? Can we talk about this later, he says? There's no time. May I kill it? I hate to be such a nuisance. I really do appreciate this. You're being so kind and all of that. I appreciate it, really. But thank you. I think I'm fine now. May I Kill it. Look now, he's quieted down. I think it's really, you're making such a fuss, and it needs to be more gradual. I don't think I'm up to this. I need more time. This seems like a major surgery. May I kill it, he says. Maybe later. There's no other day but today. It goes on and on, back and forth like this. Until finally, the flaming spirit says, I cannot kill this thing off against your will. I need your permission. Do I have it? And finally, the man relents, and he repents. And in a moment, he realizes that he's better off dead than living the rest of his life with this hideous creature affixed to his shoulder. And so he says, go ahead. Do do what you like. Kill it. Oh, God, help me. God, help me. Kill it. Go. Do it. Do it. And in a moment, the flaming angel reaches out and grabs hold of that lizard and yanks it, tears it free from the man's shoulder and crushes it with a single mighty thrust and throws it on the ground. And the man screams in pain, a brief moment of sorrow, but now he is free. And that's what Jesus wants to do in your life. What's the red lizard on your shoulder? That sin, that problem, that repeating cycle of unhealth, that pain, that thing that's no good for you, but you've made allowance for it. You've made an alliance with it. Something that you become so comfortable with, it's become like part of you. It's affixed on your shoulder. What's your... Red lizard. Is there something that you're refusing to give up, even though you, part of you hates it? You don't want it. You say you don't want it. You complain about it. It's a problem, but you've kind of gotten used to it, and you've made excuses for it, and now it's there, but you know it's not God's will for you. What is it? That's your lizard. And Jesus is standing before you. The living Christ is before us right now, people, with his hand reached out, asking you, may I kill it? Do you want to get well? And he waits for our permission and for each of us to surrender everything to him, trusting that his new way of life is so much better if we can just get through the brief temporary pain of change. We've talked about what Jesus sees. He sees our pain. We've talked about what Jesus asks. Do you want to get well? We talked about what he often hears. I can't. But notice what Jesus says. Notice what Jesus says. He does not say, oh, you poor thing. 
This is not Jesus bending down on a knee saying, tell me your story. Where does it hurt? This is not that Jesus today. No. This is not Jesus yelling at everybody else. Why don't you help this guy into the pool? Can't you see? No, no, no. Instead, look at verse 8. John chapter 5, verse 8. Jesus told him, get up. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus sometimes tells us to do the very thing that we feel like we have been unable to do. But he won't go against this man's will. He won't go against your will. You've got to get up and move. Jesus is saying to you and me, bend your greatest will around this thing. If you want to be healed, you make supreme effort. And I will meet you and I will do what you cannot do. I will do what only I can do. But I need you to do what only you can do. Get up. Get moving. Pick up your mat and move on. And you and God can do it together. But it won't happen any other way. So you can sit and complain by the pool for the rest of your life or you can trust God and get up in an area that you know he's got power to heal you. A farmer prays like crazy for rain, right? But he better also work his rear end off out in the fields or he's not gonna be much of a harvest because God and the farmer do it together, am I right? My friend Tim Talked about his marriage going down the tubes. Couldn't communicate, thought it was over. But he said, you know what? We weren't just going to lie there on our mat and watch it die. So they worked hard. They surrendered their egos. They committed their hearts to trusting Christ more deeply and to try to understand each other. They bought books. They went to seminars. They paid for counselors. They went to church every weekend. They got in a small group. They worked their tails off, and God saved their marriage. You see how that works? Jesus healed that man and said, you get up and walk. Put your best effort toward it. He wants to to bring new life and healing and help for us, and he wants you and me to get up and get going. It's a hard word today. It's the way Jesus is sometimes. I'm not thinking about that man lying there on that mat. Good grief. 38 years. Think about it. 38 years. Wow, that's a long time. 38 years. Think about it. Like what Christine Kane says, if I just wiggled like an inch a year, I'd be there. 38 years is 1980. 1980 was 38 years ago. Wow. That was before, that was before fax machines. A camcorder came out that year. You could get them in Japan. 38 years. Good grief. Before mobile phones, the U.S. hockey team. U.S. hockey team. They won over in Soviet Union on the Miracle on Ice. That was 38 years ago. Rubik's Cube came out, a new thing called Pac-Man. And everyone was asking, who shot JR? Kids, ask your parents about that one. <laughs> 38 years. Michael Jordan was sitting on the bench in high school basketball. That's a long time to sit by the pool. And friends, I know we've got we've to take into account our past And be sensitive to the things that land us by the pool in the first place. Things that have happened to us and all the difficulties in life. I get all that. But there comes a time, don't you suppose, Jesus is saying to us today, that you've got to move past your past. Where it's just time to get up and move past your past. Or we can just lie around by the pool. Or you can move past your past. There's a a time to, to realize that Jesus has done more for us than anything that's been done to us. So, is 38 years enough time? 
Listen, there's always going to be, misery loves company. And so you can find there's a crowd by the pool. There's a crowd. And you can lie by the pool with all the people who love to just lie in their shame and their doubt and wallow in their self-pity and all of their defeat and negativity. There's a crowd for that. No problem. Just lie there and just enjoy it. Fill with blaming. Fill with excuses. Live your miserable life by the pool if you want to. But Jesus says, get up. Change your posture. Change your perspective. It's hard to get up. It's easy to lie down. I sit still for two hours and my legs hurt. I don't want to move. This guy was there for 38 years. I bet if you decide you're going to make a change, it might hurt you too. But I bet that's better than just lying by the pool, don't you reckon? Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and move forward. Move on. Because we need some people who realize there is a world who's sick and dying and hurting and lonely and broken. And it's, there's so much problem in the world. What we need is a church that's not just locked in ineffectiveness. A church that's not just lying in, in negativity and shame and fear and talking about how bad the world is. We need people who are going to rise up, get off their mats, and, 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 and fix our eyes on Jesus and move forward. Look what happened, verse, verse 9. Instantly, the man was healed. He picked up his mat, and off he went. When you need compassion, there is nobody who will give you more compassion than Jesus. That's not what we need all the time. What we have today is a Jesus who comes and asks you a very hard question. What do you really want? Let's get real. The heart-knowing God wants to know if you want to be well, if you want to be healed, if you want to have the changes that come into your life when he sets you free indeed. And what we need is people who will be salt and light, a church that will be effective to get up and rise and live in this day. Do you want to be well? Either Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and gave us his spirit and said, I'm here for you, or he didn't. And if he did... Wouldn't it be great if we had some Christ followers who lived like it? So we're going to end with prayer today. We're going to end with prayer. And the way we're going to do that is offer a moment for anyone to come forward for prayer as we close our service. We have a whole team of prayer partners who are going to be up front at all of our campuses, campus pastors and everybody else, just to pray. A few weeks ago we said, you know what, if you need to make a decision today to be baptized, do that. 200 and some people did. Today we're saying, if you are that man by the well, by the pool, and there's something inside of you that wants to just say to Jesus, I want to be healed. I want to move on. I want to move forward. I want to pick up my mat. Today is my day I want to move forward. I've got a burden I need to just give to you. I've got a red lizard I need you to crush. It might be your marriage. It might be your children. It might be your future. It might be your past. It might be just the sense that you just don't know how to articulate it, but you know you're at a place in your life where you love just someone to put their hand on your shoulder and just say your name and God's name in the same sentence and ask for his help. Or maybe you want to just come and kneel quietly by yourself. But you can come for prayer so that today's a marker on your journey, a marker where you picked up your mat and moved forward. So if I can ask everyone to stand and our prayer partners at all of our campus to come and take your place where you're going to be. If you would like someone to pray with you, just come. Prayer partners will be ready. We'll hang around as long as we need to. I'm going to pray for everyone right now so everyone gets prayed for before we go. 
And, uh, and then after we pray, if you want to come forward for more prayer for you specifically, you do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hard word, this difficult question. We hear you. Do you want to get well? You're asking us. And we are quick to say yes, yes, yes. But as we size it up, we know it's sometimes hard to get off our mat. And so, Lord, here is us. Here we are inviting you to heal us, to take us forward, to give us the courage to change and to know what we're asking and to know that there is such a better life waiting that you give us instead of being trapped in the small thinking and in the sickness and the crippled ways of life that we have. God, I pray for these people, for the freedom that awaits as we trust you more fully and completely and live lives for you and with you. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said, amen. Amen. See you next week.